0: Hey friends, my name's Kyle, and I'll start this one off with a story. A long time ago, I was standing inside of a bar in Northern California, and a gorgeous woman walked up to me, and she tapped me on the shoulder and said, excuse me, are you Mark Healy? I turned around and responded, why, yes I am, because when the universe gives you an opportunity to impersonate one of the most well-known big wave surfers in the world, a Hollywood stuntman, one of the top spear fishermen in the world. You don't say no to the universe. So we took a photo together. She told me that she would tag me, Mark Healy, on her Instagram, and she bought me a drink. And that was the last I ever saw of her. But I did want to thank Mark for letting me impersonate him and feeling like a genuine badass for 15 minutes of my life. Mark is a great guy. He is an autodidact. He is a critical thinker. And we always get into really interesting conversations whenever we hang out together. In this conversation, we talk a lot about the business of big wave surfing, negotiating contracts. We talk about um, changing opinions on issues. We talk about shark tagging and more. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark Healy. If you like this podcast, I would be grateful if you would donate to it. You can head over to my website, kyle.surf, to do that. And by donating even just a buck a month, you will be entered into a monthly raffle where I give away all kinds of great gear from my surf sponsors, including Patagonia Provisions, Sector 9 Skateboards, RPM Jump Ropes. All right. Um... Without further preamble, please welcome the last action hero, Mark Healy. Kyle Tierman here, I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana.
1: You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I
0: love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. Hey. Oh, hey, 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 hey. Oh. Standing at a right. desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Right. Smiles and thumbs up.
1: Thumbs up. To and She's all- pretty
0: good. <laughs> right. So, um, I
1: think I think something that hasn't been taught to kids, and it, this could come off wrong, but um, your opinion isn't always valid. Right. (laughs) Like if I'm not going to go have an opinion on open heart surgery and think it's as valid as somebody who's been doing that for 10 years, because it's not, my opinion is not relevant to that conversation. And I should probably shut the hell up and just listen and learn something. Right. One of my favorite
0: (laughs) things that, um, you know, who Steve Rinella is? Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite things that that he talks about is that, you know, when people, um, ask him about like, so what's your opinion on the debt ceiling or something like that? I'll just say, I don't fucking know. I don't know, I, I need to learn more about it before I'm gonna take this this digging my heels into the ground approach to mm-hmm. issues that most of us really don't know very much about. But he was talking about open spaces and national parks and he knows a lot about that. So he actually has an, an authoritative role in that and he's someone who we should listen to about that. But yeah, it was um, a big like kind of podcast that changed my life on this was um, Radiolab's episode on the Rhino Hunter. Did you ever see that one? Uh, I have not. It's really good. It's all about this guy who pays $350,000 to hunt a Namibian black rhino. And the the reporter from Radiolab goes to the, um, the auction and they show how much money is generated from... Um, these auctions for hunting, and but a Namibian black rhino isn't exactly hunting a pig on um, on the Big Island, big right? Difference. It's a big difference. But they take an older post-reproductive male, um, one that has actually been goring other males that had been trying to mate with females, um, and they single it out. And all of that money then goes to resource management, habitat restoration. And this guy goes and he hunts it, but it's, it's all about his plight doing it um, because he's receiving death threats. He's receiving calls from people saying that they're going to kill his kids, kill his wife. And It's ridiculous. It's, cr- it's crazy, it's, man. And, and you know what? Um, I can't get my head around
1: wanting to go and shoot a rhino. Like I don't want to eat rhino steaks. Um, the animal's from the area, and, but I totally know that that's my trip. That's my personal opinion and what I do know is personal opinions aside that that guy going and paying that amount of money is helping save the species so I can set aside my personal shit and an opinion on shooting a rhino and be like okay I'll shelf that that's not part of the conversation what is part of the conversation is how we're going to save these things and that's how they're being saved
0: right what's an issue that you've had to change your opinion about? Hmm, Issues that I've had to change my opinion about. Because so many people are so unwilling to do that and be like, shit, I was wrong. Right. M-
1: my bad. Yeah, that's a really good question. I need to think about that for a second. Um, well, I, I, I think what I, I'm constantly kind of in the, the throes of getting my head around and, and the opinion changes. Um, And it's very relevant. We're at the Patagonia house right now. Patagonia has been the shining example of being able to um, create a successful business model out of um, good business practices and environmentally sound policies. But um, it's just, especially since I'm, you know, I'm always trying to learn in in the business world and I'm part of a few startups and have businesses of my own, is uh, how do you balance that out because there are, you know, everybody can, and it comes back down, actually, it's the same kind of problem as like the, the, the food security problem and the agrichem stuff in Hawaii. Everybody, like you say, can kick and scream about stuff on social media and I can preach as much as I want about, hey, I want, you know, sustainably sourced clothing, I want good food, etc. But unless people go and pay for that stuff, then it doesn't happen. People have to be willing to pay more. Like this is a a luxury item to be able to get things that are sourced. It costs more money. It's probably going to last longer. So it's just, I'm always kind of turning that one in my head. Actually, one of them is, I was on a farm. It's called uh, Ho Farms. My buddy is um, married into the family. Uh, He's a rock climber, really cool guy. Uh, His name's Justin. Out here on Hawaii? Yeah. And they have farms around the island. And it was really interesting to see their perspective as the struggle is like, local farmers trying to feed the population and and also do you know find different crops that really work for like the restaurants that want to do farm to table and really try to do the responsible thing and they're like okay so everybody said that they didn't want the sunrise gmo papayas so we stopped growing them and we did a couple of seasons of normal papayas once they got to fruiting size and we take them to market, and all those people who kicked and screamed about it just abandon us. They didn't buy it because it has blemishes. So, you know, they feel abandoned at the end of the day. And, you know, that's probably one of the things I actually did change my mind about is uh, the Sunrise Papaya. Um, because, you know, we're, we're, we have that debate between um, GMO products and agrichem chemical testing on agriculture land in Hawaii. And the two kind of get... Um, the lines get blurred, so you get people at protests are like, "No GMOs whatsoever," and I and it's unavoidable. Genetic modification of organisms is happening. You can kick and scream about it, but it's going to happen. But what we're re- the whole movement is really about is not testing a bunch of restricted use poisons and creating new poisons and basically being limitless on how they're applied to land in Hawaii.
0: Right, because because one of the big issues that people have with GMOs on Hawaii is that. These um, plants, namely corn, canola, um, there's, there's like four or five sure of them that are, the, yeah, that are the big ones. And the point of, of modifying them genetically is so that they can withstand stronger pesticides, which makes it easier then for the farmers to go and, and grow these seeds without having to deal with um, weeds growing. But Hawaii is kind of suffering the brunt of that. Um, because there are a lot of chemicals around it, mm-hmm. but but what you're saying is that it is more com- complex than that, and I do agree. Yeah. I do agree with you. And and I actually came over here a number of years ago and did a short documentary on the GMO movement. And now looking back at that, I wish I would have done it differently. That that's an issue that I think is so is so nuanced, but it's so easy to say GMOs are le- are evil. Yeah, it's right? it's really easy to to make a blanket statement like that. But
1: I think that the key takeaways that need to be um, highlighted is that uh, these GMO (laughs) uh, crops are being engineered purely to withstand the chemicals. And these are old world chemicals that are, they figured out have given you cancer, so they're very limited use um, and all of that. So when the chemical companies own the patent on the seed they're planning on making more money on the chemicals that they the farmer then has to buy with it than the seed itself. Right. So they're finding ways to make more chemical sales that work with the patents that they already have. So right. it's not to feed the world. It's to create more, more uh, plants that are completely reliant on their chemicals.
0: Right. And it seems like one of the big issues that people in Hawaii have also is that the crops used aren't for human consumption, they're strictly used for for testing, basically yes. testing purposes. So they'll mm-hmm. they'll grow a huge crop and then will will then just regrow a new crop, and some of it will go to a, uh, animal agriculture. But mm-hmm. I think very little of it, or none of it, it goes to human consumption. No, correct?
1: none of it goes to human consumption. It gets most of it gets shipped off to the mainland. Um, actually I had a friend who was a, a pilot and would have to shuttle the seeds in between islands. And each box was, I think it was, they would be insured for between like fifteen dollars and $25,000 per box of seed. Whoa. So they talk about making all these jobs over here, but it's mostly just low paying jobs. All the, all the science when they go send it away is actually happening in the mainland. So they're big hoopla about making jobs, which is like, you know, I understand everybody has to have jobs and everything. And, and I, I really trip out in, in the media and everything's we can talk about absolutely destroying the environment and our health, but there's always the, the main part of the argument is like, well, it costs this much money or it makes that much money. Like, your health is worth more than money.
0: Right. It all goes back to <laughs> we're costing us jobs. And we're like, well, you know, you could have jobs grinding up baby kittens, but it doesn't necessarily
1: make them great <laughs> exactly, jobs. Exactly. And when you don't get that social security, when you have leukemia later, yeah. where's that job? How's that going to help you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> when that social security is dried up, you're never going to see that. So when you're too old to work and too sick, what? how's that job going to be helping well, you Well, it's then? interesting
0: how ish from issue to issue... Um, media and companies will use the same tactics that they know work on people. Because oh, totally. a lot of people are, are struggling, right? Money and and having a secure job has always been and will always be a very important issue for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can lean on that, uh, whether you're an oil company or whether you're a genetic engineering company um, or really anything. But it's such a strong argument that it doesn't... It, it kind of is a good way to, to negate anything that could be detrimental to the business that you're running.
1: Yeah, it's the ace in their hand every time. I mean, we live in a society that's run on the, the on what is it, uh, fear, liability, and um, what's the other one? <laughs> Sex. But, <laughs> Sex, violence. No, but uh, fear and liability, it's just, I'm afraid I'm gonna lose my job, and I, yeah, they, I mean, we can go way deeper on that topic, but then there's the whole concept of my job defines who I am, and this, that, and the other. So it's getting into some deep human psychology and kind of manipulating right. a fear trigger.
0: Right. It's it's um it's the argument of price versus cost. Mm-hmm. Price versus cost and. Right now, we have a price on. I pay this much for a jacket, or I pay this much for an apple. But we rarely see the cost because a lot of that has um, has been exported to mm-hmm. someone else to have to pay that cost, right? But it, but I do think that it is turning more and more as media has become. Um, As the internet really Mm -hmm. has happened is people are able to see, you know The the child on the other end of that t-shirt or the chemical on the other end of that Fruit and I I I am optimistic. I do think that it is shifting more and more um, Thanks to a lot of good media that is that's coming out about it. I I agree. Definitely.
1: We're in a real interesting time this it's kind of like Wild West Um, and I think it's awesome that people can, there can be hacks and leaks and, and, and good journalism done and, and really bring, um, our impacts to the forefront. But the the main thing is, is then it requires action Yeah. and people don't want to feel uncomfortable and guilty. They want to just, it, it, it comes back down to, to a decision, like how much effort do you want to put into thinking about something? How much effort do you want to? Put then into backing up what you say yeah. on a post or whatever it is.
0: Right. Um, yeah. One one uh, thing I've been doing with with people who have been commenting on my hunting post is they'll just be like, "You monster! I'm so disappointed in you." Mm. <laughs> I'll be right. Interesting. Tell me more. Dat, dat, dat. <laughs> and so often they don't even comment back because I'm like, yeah. I, I want to have a conversation with you about this. I understand that visceral reaction that people get to a dead animal, mm-hmm. um, and I still have it. I'm a, a novice in this whole world, but I do have. I do think that it's a really important topic that we that we talk about. And um, and as you said, understand the overall benefits of something like hunting.
1: Oh, totally. And it's, I, I, I get the knee jerk reaction as well. Like I don't like seeing dead bears or wolves or coyotes or like some of the pictures, of uh, man of like foxes and feral cats getting shot. You know, it's not, I don't, I'm not into that, Yeah. but I know it needs to happen because I went like, Ooh, this is like a kind of a gut instant reaction that I have. Um, should i have that and i researched it i'm like wow these animals you know either it's very well thought out how people get the tags and everything or they're a major major nuisance um that are about to put a bunch of animals into extinction so they have to go um when did you start hunting i started hunting probably oh god i would say about five years ago so fairly recently um I got into it because uh, Wassel was bow hunting, Dave Wassel that is, and Shane Dorian, and and they always they just were head over heels for it. And I was like, you know what, man, I, uh, I don't know, I I just can't see it being that exciting, you know. And but sounds and like have, a lot of walking for long distances, yeah, exactly. and trying to be quiet. Like I I kind I would hike a ton when I was a kid uh, up in the mountains here in, on Oahu, but. It, at the same time, it was never like exciting for me because it's not like being in the, in the mainland in Montana or something. You might see these big predators or all these different animals here. It's pretty much, you see the same stuff for the most part and you don't have to worry about like getting stalked, possibly eaten by an animal. So it's not as exciting, I guess. But uh, after a while I was like, okay, I've been in some crazy situations with these guys. They obviously know what, you know, what a good, what a time, good time is, is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, so I finally went, and it was so bizarre. And Wassel uh, took me up to a tree stand um, here on Oahu, and we we're waiting, we we're waiting, sitting up there peeing into a jar because you don't want to. We were up there for like hours. Had this giant jar full of pee. Don't you know, want to mix remember. that up with a water bottle. Yeah, hey, <laughs> and because um, you don't want the scent going down because right. the pigs will never come in. I was like, yeah, you know. This is fun, and but as soon as animals show up, your heart just starts racing, and you can't you can't know the feeling unless you go and experience it. Like I can't recreate that feeling just thinking about it. How would you describe it? It's it's really it really strikes like a primal kind of fight or flight nerve. It gets it becomes like very, you know, personal. It's like you and the animal. I kind of liken it to like. You know, you got to go fight some guy at, behind the bleachers after school, you know, and you're like psyching <laughs> yourself up. Like, like, you know, I got I to gotta get psyched, but I got to still be able to think, well, like, how's this
0: going to start off? How's it going to play I'm going to hit out? him with a left. Exactly. No, 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 I'm going to hit him with a left and then a no. the right. i I'm going to spit in his face. No, no, I'm going to spit him in the, the him in the face and in the Exactly. Yeah so most of go down then I'm gonna run as fast as I can yeah and so it's it yeah
1: it's something primal man it it really hits a chord and uh, then all of a sudden you're like oh my gosh I got a function I'm shaking like a leaf right now and then you're like the shot has
0: to be perfect and is it is the animal hearing me and it, it's crazy did you have a spot to practice uh, where you live with, yeah with a bow beforehand obviously
1: yeah yeah um, Wassel had me practice with his bow um, For a while and he's like, yeah, I think he can make a 30-yard shot. We'll go up in this I didn't ended up end up shooting a pig that day, but he shot a really nice boar Um, I just didn't think I could pull a shot off,
0: but I got a taste of it and got pretty hooked after that Yeah, I got to see the whole field dressing process and yep cutting the animal up and then cooking and that's the
1: tracking I mean just tracking an animal is is an incredible art form in and of itself I I think I'd liken it more to surfing. So, you know, I've taken friends and and people that are really great snowboarders or really great skateboarders and um, teaching them how to surf. And the thing about surfing is, is you gotta learn two different skills. Whereas like if you're just on a half pipe with a skateboard, you just gotta learn how to ride, just the functionality of it. But when you have to learn how to surf, you have to learn about how the ocean works and that takes years. Like you can't just know how a break is gonna work if you don't have any kind of, um, any kind of background in that. So, you know, you, you can take these guys that are amazing, super coordinated, like far, far more coordinated than I am um, snowboarders, skaters, and it, when they stand up on the wave, of course they're way above the learning curve. But the, but the whole process of learning the timing where I need to be to catch a wave And I think I liken, uh, bow hunting to that. Like you have to learn how to, the technical part of actually shooting the bow, you need to learn about nature, the wind, how these animals work, their behavior, their motivations. But then you got to find this animal. And that is something that's totally different from that whole other chunk that, uh, uh, of kind of skills that you learned.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it uh, and you could be walking all day long, and you could potentially not even see an animal.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, especially if you're going into like new areas that you haven't been. There's there's just so much that goes into um, into actually scouting and really learning the rhythm of that particular location, and that's something that I found so interesting the first time I went and hunted axis deer over on Lanai, hunting with some of the guys over there. And I just thought it was such a trip that they're like, oh, there's that buck. I saw him last year. Like they, they watch, they're aware of all of these animals and they've seen them like from year to year pop in and out. And they can tell just by looking at the antlers. Um, and I just was like, how out of, you know, probably 15,000 deer on this island, how can you possibly remember a deer that was, had a smaller size set of antlers the year before? but you recognize it the next year as a little bigger just because it has this one little tweak on one side or the other. And and the ability to really focus on little details like that to where I see, would see a, a deer and I'd just be like, oh my God, I see brown with spots. It's like, get, right, get, get right, my arrow ready. Right. You know, they're like, okay, yeah, I think that's that one that he usually comes up from this side or whatever.
0: Right, but I'm... Um conversely, if you take them into the ocean and you say, oh yeah, there's a riptide that's gonna come out right here and you need to paddle out from the left, but it's gonna suck you out over the right and that's intuitive to you. But yeah. To so many people that are like, riptide? What? I don't see a riptide. Yeah, yeah, and, or swell direction. It's gonna be right. totally different from one day to the next. So one thing that I like about you is that you enjoy learning. And I've seen mm-hmm. you apply uh, something that you enjoy learning to your career very quickly, which um, allows you to then learn it more quickly for example Mm and you you started bow hunting five years ago you then um you you started working with yeti which is a hunting and fishing Mm -hmm. company and i i like that because i'm sure it's forced you to accelerate your learning in in these sports that you do was that a conscious decision when you started bow hunting um when i started bow hunting yeah it's i'm i'm always
1: like that with things like I have an unrealistic expectation That I'm gonna learn things like way better Than I guess it's like some Maybe I was complimented too much as a child By my mother some shit like that <laughs> I have this like I always have this like You're kind the of
0: best out, Outlandish you keep you down.
1: <laughs> Exactly I have this like Kind of ridiculous amount of confidence In that like I'm gonna pick this up Like twice as fast as everybody else And actually bow hunting is totally Has not been the case man it, You cannot to force that one to happen quick. Yeah. It's been, I, but I'll go and I'll just put my head down and disappear all day long. And, um, I, I kind of like this struggle. So uh, I'll just keep going. I'll just put, throw more hours at it than somebody else is willing to. Right.
0: Do you, uh, would you say that that's what you have that has allowed you to get good at a bunch of different, um, sports and activities is you'll just throw more time into it than other people? Yeah. Well, I just, I just. <sighs> I just hate being hate, shitty at you things. You hate, hate being shitty, shitty at oh, things. I know. I can tell. I'll that about do whatever you. it takes. I'll do whatever it takes. <laughs> You're one of those. Yeah, yeah,
1: I am. Like, if we, I, gosh, I, I'm, I'm a terrible ping pong player, but um, it won't, you know, stop me from trying to challenge one of my friends who's really good twenty times in a row just to try to beat him once. And I'll definitely be screaming and yelling and and, and belittling myself along the way. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Um, and so what's it been like? It seems like hunting and spearfishing have become a larger and larger part of your life mm-hmm. um, in recent years. And, and I do, I I think it's cool because a, a lot of people who are great surfers will say, "Okay, I have this skill set in surfing, and a company is going to pay me to surf for the rest of my life because mm-hmm. I can do these few things," but. Clearly, that's not the case, especially in, in the world that we're look, living in now. I was just down surfing Rocky Point the other day, and the amount of phenomenal surfers without stickers on their boards oh yeah—was um, was a little creepy.
1: Oh, yeah. It's not going to get any better either. It's not going to get any easier to be a professional surfer.
0: What do you think is um, the future of the surf industry?
1: The future you, of the surf yeah, industry what do, what is obviously not going to be... Uh, uh, repeating the same problems. I got it in the hole in the first place. You what know? are those problems? Um, trying to do everything. And as far as like, Hey, I'm, I think, you know, that's, that's been learned pretty well. Like I'm going to make clothes. I'm going to, no, I'm going to buy a bunch of real estate and have shops. I'm going to make watches. I'm going to make fucking enema kits, whatever, you know, and they get spread too thin. I don't know. Um, that could
0: be a good angle. <laughs> no pun intended.
1: <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and also, I th- gone are the days where people just want to wear a logo. Actually, I would say, I dare say, that the only brand that could pull off, like where people will just buy something for the logo is probably Patagonia right now. Yeah. Um, but... But you it's, know but
0: it's because it has such a strong value set attached to it. it's not like oh I wear, yeah. I wear this because this other cool guy is wearing it it's more of that I wear this because I believe in open spaces I believe in the environment I believe in paying people well right where a yeah. lot of it it's like like what do you actually fucking stand for right well, once companies you go, and the companies they don't know they're like well we just want you know it's gonna be cool it's gonna be like you, know, you
1: once you go low you can't go back high. So if what do you mean by you, that? So once you start selling your, your gear starts ending up in target for $10 a pop, you can't go and make premium products and people take it seriously anymore. You can't go out and try to please everybody. Like I remember being at these meetings at you know, past sponsors, marketing meetings, cause I'd always, I like to learn and, um, I just thought it was just so ass backwards how (laughs) things would get approached. You don't need to mention the companies, but what were some of the things that would be said? They would just be so afraid of, you know, of leaving any segment out of the population. They're like, no, we gotta, this is, and you get this like nauseating, lukewarm marketing campaign. It's like, okay we didn't offend anybody we didn't um challenge anybody uh, i think this is just vanilla enough to throw out there and apply to like five different age demographics and people from lake havasu to you know huntington beach and aren't going to be people offended. smell a rat yeah they're like wow you guys stand for nothing great right they're not going to buy a logo t-shirt anymore
0: the nauseating, lukewarm campaign <laughs> yeah. coming 2017.
1: Yeah, the, the campaign, it just, it just, thinking of it, it just reminded me of like how your sal- mouth fills with saliva before you're going to vomit. Right? Right. It's like right, <laughs> it's and, the feel of the campaigns. <clears throat> and I'd just be like, oh my God.
0: I was um, thinking about this the other day, too, how a lot of times, right, when you, when you want to buy something, you're mm-hmm. buying it because of values or you're buying it because you believe that this is a type of person who i want to be like. And if you mm-hmm. we all have the friend, right, who's just a little bit two-faced, right? Like or hopefully we don't have the friend. Hopefully. We, hopefully we, hopefully we weeded that friend out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you don't know who the friend is, it's you. <laughs> right? But but if you if you enough times are around that friend who you're like, "What, they say one thing over here and then they say another thing over there." Um as you said, you can smell a rat and it's just it's too bad. It really is because I do think that there there was that golden era, right, where everyone was getting paid. You could do no wrong. And you could in do no 90s. wrong, right? And and now you have to be much more intelligent about it and mm-hmm. and really know what you want to say. And I and I think that coolers like how the fuck did a cooler company get so big, Yeti? And I think the, the reason for it is because they make badass content. I I yeah. watch their content on their site because it's not logo heavy. They're genuine stories about real people, and and I enjoy that. And I don't but, I don't have an affiliation with Bit Yeti. I just think they're I think it's super like, cool. Well, they
1: they laid a foundation in a really really good premium product. Like I can honestly vouched like it's an amazing product you can buy one cooler and give it to your grandkids one day it's awesome um so there you go you have your foundation they didn't do any backpedaling like here's our half off like cheaper one um so people already have this associate their brand with top quality you know i'm not going to get a deal but i get what i pay for in this i'll end up going through four other cheap coolers by the time i'd have this one yeti cooler it actually saves me money in the long run And then they paired making awesome content that really, you know, I I think it comes from the heart with them. The, the the people who work there, the people who started it, they loved outdoors and doing these things. And they probably saw that like, Hey, nobody's doing like doing it justice as far as um, film. So, you know, I, I think as long as it always comes from an authentic place. I mean, for me, like I just signed with Lululemon. They're my main sponsor. And, I'll be totally honest i remember when lululemon first came out i was like i will never wear something that's named lululemon are you out of your mind i remember i remember jamie sterling would have some on it some of his stuff and i was like oh brah, that is heavy um but it took a while and then i finally like i was given a shirt and i wore it i was like oh my god this is the best shirt i've ever worn in my life and um and then I started using the products more and more. And then, you know, I got past the initial shock of it starting off as like a women's yoga brand. And I'm like, wow, this stuff is killer. Um, so I think at the end of the day, for me, I might be a weirdo, but I just like quality products. And I'm at a point in my life, you know, where I've learned through trial and error that you're better off getting a quality p- product, you know, like a, you know, Patagonia Puffy or Lululemon shirt, or pair of, um,
0: pants that you can
1: wear anywhere um
0: when you um throughout your career and all the brands that you've worked with um what have been the big biggest things that you've learned through trial and error because i've had two friends now both justin lee and greg long Mm -hmm. say separately that one thing that you do really well is you know your value and you do a really good job of bringing that when you're gonna work with a company And I'm mm-hmm. guessing that that was a learned skill um, What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned along
1: the way? so Probably <clears throat> the thing that served me more than anything is uh, Well, I've always been a hustler like when I was a kid. I was we were dead broke, but I um, I'd walk dogs, I'd sell baseball cards, I'd wash cars. Like I always was a self-starter and uh, I like not having to rely on other people for, or ask for handouts. Like I just won't ask for handouts. <laughs> um, and uh, through the process and end up, Oh, well, wow, professional surfing is kind of working. Um, I, I had a really hard time and I still do like selling myself. Right. So it's like, because it's kind of so, I don't know, with, with professional surfing being a non-contest surfer, you go into a room with, with your team manager and the marketing director at some point in the year and you're like, hey, I'm killing it. I'm super awesome. You guys should pay me to be awesome. You know? And it's just, like, I'm not going to go and do that. And I always kind of like, I will always hedge what I say back because I, I want to make sure I can fulfill what, what I'm agreeing to. So I was like, how do I do this? I, I can't bring myself to really go and do the, the, the talking. How do I do this? And I, I figured out at, a, at an early age, I'm like, just use numbers. Math doesn't lie. There's no spinning math. So I'd go through the um, surf magazines. I'd, I'd tally up how many shots I got, call the guys at, at the magazine, whether it be surfer or surfing back then, and be like, hey, what's the ad rate they give me an ad rate, I'd tally it up. I'd be like, here, this is, I got you a hundred thousand dollars worth of ad space. And then I was actually really early on into Surfline. And that was like the beginning of, I mean, for people out there listening, I'm old enough to have grown up without the internet. So all of a sudden through this digital platform, you could really, really track what you're doing. So I just really stuck to, um, uh, really watching what is the most productive ways to um, kind of monetize monetize it, yeah, or at least show the value that they're getting for paying right. paying you, you know, and um, keeping track of it, and and also watching how the rhythms go, like what do people respond to? What uh, what
0: did you find that people responded to most?
1: Well, er, back then, so if you could probably look it up on Surfline, but it was early days Surfline. And um, they're like, yeah, Mike Chinchuli was like, we should do something on you. And I was like, you know what? I have all this footage um, of me surfing pipe, but I have a ton of like crazy wipeout footage. Like everybody's trying to make themselves look all cool and everything. But I swear, it's like you go down to the beach at Pipeline, all the tourists are watching. Guy gets a wave of the winter. They're like, yay. Somebody jumps out the back and does a flip just kicking out, which is nothing. And they're like, oh my God, crowd. Crowd goes wild. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, let's put these, these wipeout clips to use. And, um, we did it and it was like crushed anything that Surfline put out for the whole year. And I was like, okay. Yeah. If it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> and that's, no, that's no surprise there. But it was kind of unprecedented for, for somebody to actively put out like wipeouts of themselves. Right. It was something different. Yeah. And, um, it kind of set set the tone for w- w- the way some things have panned out, but um, in general, I've stuck. I've just stuck to my guns and stuck to what I really love doing because I feel like I've thought it through, and that's why I pursue things, whether it be paddling into big waves or spearfishing, and the benefits of free diving and breath work and bow hunting now. Um, and I feel like I've vetted it out, so no matter how many times people told me that you know, that, that never works. Like make sure you don't have that involved in any of your surf stuff. And that's the way it's been. Mostly I've been like, you know what? I'm going to well, go. People recommended that you not get your spear fishing and your oh, hunting yeah. life into your surfing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Huh. That was like, and, and even paddling big waves they are like, Oh, you know, we really wish you'd tow more and stuff like that. But I just, what? I never, yeah. Yeah. That sounds ridiculous. But back then it was like, I, you know, just waving by to your career, sticking to and surfing. I'd go paddle out of reefs with like Wassel and a couple of other buddies and you're getting run over by 15 tow teams. It was like, get out of here. Whoa. You got old guys like telling you that you're like behind the times. Wow, crazy. <laughs> no, but I just stuck to my guns because on on everything that i really am passionate about because i think it's well thought through and if it's presented to people in the right way they'll they'll understand why and they'll go and experience it and be like oh my god i'm so glad i got um talked into trying this out and it's always come back around for me right always
0: um one one thing that i found that a lot of athletes have a hard time doing is Asking for the kind of money that they really want or that Mm -hmm. they really need and it's this kind of like the same with what you said Where people don't like to promote themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Or they just have there's just that kind of queasy feeling that gets done Um, I'm gonna get very specific here. Do you Will you just send out an email saying like this is what I need and this is? This is how I need this structured or um, like, how does that actually work in your life? And what have been the biggest wins? Because I, I, I think com- that this is kind of a nebulous subject for a lot of people that and yep. they would appreciate that kind of um, guidance, I guess.
1: I think, you know, I've never been afraid to take risk in my career. Um, and with, uh, I guess, uh, business ventures. Um, so, you know, I've done well, but I've also lost a ton. I've had people surf industry skip out on at least $300,000 on me over my, the span of my career. Like these people can be straight up crooks sometimes. You know? <laughs> and um, it's unfortunate, but it's true. And, and that's the thing in, in the surf industry is they, for a long time, they did a very good job at, at keeping people afraid to say anything about it. Like, you know, okay, we're gonna burn you for, you know, the tune of $100,000 what are you going to do, sue us? No one else in the industry is going to touch you if they hear that you're suing the company that just burned you for it. Like, that's how it's gone for a lot of people. And there's a lot of things that have happened behind the scenes that unless you're really embedded, you would never know. Like, I think if the general public knew how much professional surfers have gotten super burned over the years, it would blow their minds. Right. So it's a a battlefield. And the hardest thing, too, is that... um, The surf industry has it, whether you um, are willing to admit it or not, it is just the same thing applies as if you're, you know, working in the financial industry or something. It is just as like here today, gone tomorrow, cutthroat business. But the thing is, is it's mixed with this whole like, bro, man, we're just bros. We'll go party at the promo tours and then,
0: They'll just and then they and then wait until the eleventh hour, and you get a call and say, "Oh, sorry, we can't sponsor you anymore."
1: But we we'll, or or wait, and this is something that's happened to a lot of people and a lot of companies have done is um, they just won't get back to you the last three months of the year, so you get painted into the corner, and you tell your other offers like, "Hey, no," they verbally agreed to resign, and then they wait till you know January fifth. All those other offers, the budget money had to get used. They know that dries up. They come back and they're like, "Oh, you know what?" Um, yeah we want to sign you but for 30 percent of what we originally offered that is like the go-to move it reminds me of like how tiger sharks they have like two go-to approaches on the surface and the chop or they come straight up from the bottom and that's like <laughs> some of the big surf companies go-to approaches for hosing
0: guys and getting them for on the cheap so, so what would you do uh, in that situation? Let's say that it gets down to the last three months. Cause I do think this applies to not only professional surfers, but a lot of people who are either independent contractors or, you know, they're, they're learning how to negotiate and we don't get taught this in school. Mm-hmm. What would you do in those last three months? Let's start say knocking on doors. Surprise. I'm here. Talk to me
1: <laughs> now. <laughs> you know, there's a lot that you can tell by seeing people eye to eye. Um, uh and it, you know it's like I don't want to paint the picture like it's you know some cutthroat businessman or whatever but you have to, you have to protect yourself and I've just seen so many good people get so worked over but um you know it's you, you have to have a, a certain instinct about it and the thing the advice that I always give um people I remember giving Billy Kemper this advice um he'd asked me years ago when he was still kind of coming up, he's like, what should I do? You know, I want to go full-time professional surfing and everything, and I, was, I said, make yourself irreplaceable. You have to make yourself irreplaceable. Do things that they could not find somebody else to do for the company. you Your integral part, you're like an organ to that company to be able to do their things, and you're only worth as much as somebody else is willing to pay you. So no matter, even if it's you know, it depends on the language in your contract. But you need to have other options. Period. What, what do you mean by that La- language in your contract? Competitive. Well, well, um, in a lot of contracts, if it'll say that you can't go and solicit um, sponsorship while during the course of the contract. So they usually also have a first right of refusal that's in there as well. So like, say, okay, my contract's up on December 31st. I'm technically not allowed to go and solicit um, up until December 31st, but then they have a first right of refusal. So if another company, if I solicit, and I'm, I am have this dead time where I'm not getting paid, that they will drag out, and it finally do the, the legwork in a really poor time for budgets that are already spent up from another company, they can match it and still keep me. Um... So, so you've
0: written that into certain contracts no said, they
1: they write it they in. write it and you and the the standard stock surf contract is a that is handed to everybody is almost the same for for all the major companies is an absolute joke you waive all your rights it says you can't get out of it and they can get out of it for any reason whatsoever or no reason at all whenever they want so unless you're redlining these contracts you're Giving up You're completely vulnerable
0: Have you had lawyers Look at your contracts And write out Specific clauses For you To not have to Get caught In that Serpent's pit Um, So Or have you just chosen To work with Companies That um, I guess Have More integrity (laughs)
1: Well the thing is Is it's not necessarily Even if it's a A company that Has a ton of Integrity It's their legal team And it's their legal team To put that contract in their favor like if if the if that's not in this the stock contract that means their legal team isn't worth a penny that they're being paid right the legal team whatever legal side it's always their job to make sure they're taking care of their client so the first shot across the bow is always going to be something that's heavily in favor of the party who whose legal team wrote it Right. And it's not, it's, that's the way it is. You don't have to get offended about it. You just have to be aware of it and change things. Uh, how do you change things? So for me, um, what I, I got my first paid contract at 17. Um, I would just read through them, and anything that I didn't understand, I'd look up. And So I've, I've ta- I can read through contracts, and I, I definitely know what's going on, and I can redline them pretty much on my own. And so um, I've redlined and negotiated all my contracts from 17 until I was 31. Wow. So I've done it a long time and I've done it for my friends too. Um, But then at a certain point, you know, with more success and more things, whether it's in the entertainment area and everything, uh, it got to be too much and I got introduced to a really, really awesome attorney. He's also a, a good friend now and uh, they handle that. But uh, at, a, at a certain point, you, you need to give up the reins or I needed to because to me, again, it's very important to me that I'm being honest and I'm f- following through with my commitments to the people that I work with. And so it can get complicated when you got 10 different contracts and you know, there's some great areas where they may overlap and... It's just I. I'm a big believer in contracts, and uh, just because it helps, it helps save relationships. Yeah, it, misunderstanding it, it, is it, the worst. It, it thing.
0: helps the world move, especially as yeah. I mean, as I've gotten into production and started working with teams, it's very important to. Have a contract to say, hey, Kyle, you're under contract going to show up for these days and yeah. you're going to work to the best of your ability. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have that, what's to keep me from just not showing up, right? Because yeah. then the whole production gets screwed. Um, so, uh, yeah, I agree. I don't think that contracts are inherently evil. They make the... They're they, I think they're they make great. The, they're great, but understanding them um, mm-hmm. is also great.
1: Yeah, and you have to understand it without getting all emotional and everything. Like I said, it's that. It's the legal team doing their job. If I was in their position and my legal team wasn't putting that across the board on the first shot, I would fire them and get a new legal team. Right. They're supposed to be looking out for you. Right, and it's intense. So, so it's up to the company to be like, "Hey, you know what? We can die. We need to dial this back in these areas." And they're like, "Okay, we can take that back."
0: Right, and it's a huge. It can be a huge ego blow to people too, right? Because you're ultimately selling yourself. Mm-hmm. And if a company's like, well, we think that you're only worth this much. Well, that's the other <laughs> good thing about
1: having representation. It's, you know, it doesn't get as personal. And and in a lot of times when it starts going back and forth with contracts and legal, um, it, it gets to the point, you know, where it's, it's not bad. It's just very nuts and bolts. It's not like, hey, aloha, how are you doing? Did you score some waves lately? It's like, no, these lines are unacceptable. They can be replaced with this. Please let me know. You know, and if you're doing that personally via the, the conduit. So if you're doing it personally, you're doing it through a team manager and a team manager doesn't know legal stuff. Team manager is and is probably the one who's going to get maybe or could get, you know, hard feelings about the process. But it's not their fault it's well, so they rare just don't understand it. So what I would do back when I still had to do mine I'd just be like, okay, it's time to just talk directly to the legal team. So I would go back and forth and negotiate with their legal team. So it's interesting.
0: Have you done <laughs> um, have you done much speaking? Have you ever gotten into doing that kind of stuff? No, um, I I'm I'm not uh, against it.
1: I I'd, I'd like to do it. Um, I've done a few engagements. I've never written a script or anything it seems to be work out better for me that way um but i am definitely interested in it it's fun it's a challenge man it's definitely a challenge i saw you did a uh was that a ted talk that you had done? i did a tedx
0: talk a while ago tedx and talk I, when I you get... showed
1: up in your bike shorts huh
0: oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> hey you got the views right sex sells <laughs>
1: sex and violence, wipeouts uh, and, and bike shorts. Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> what about wipeouts in bike shorts? Whoa. We could be honest something. Ooh. All right, I'm gonna put that one in the back pocket for later. <laughs> yeah, no, I I, um, I do speaking at different universities, colleges. And uh-huh. I have a speaking agent, and that's one of the main ways that I make my money. And, and it's super fun, I really enjoy it. I'm going out to Wisconsin to give a speech next month, because um, my, mm-hmm. my agent is over on the East Coast, mm-hmm. so a lot of the, um, the gigs that i'll get will be in you know just random places that i would never go to dayton ohio yeah um, rockford illinois and it's it's super cool um i i think that college especially which is the, the groups of kids that i talk to is a, it's a really cool age where um they're not locked into a life right they can still have some mobility in what career they really want to take and, and a lot mm-hmm. of times I think that having an honest testimony from someone come up okay, I mean, to tell their life story, right? And there are mm-hmm. two different ways that we can tell our life story. One is all the successes that we've had, and one is all the mistakes that we've we've made. And the latter is usually the more honest version. Yeah. Um. So I'm still figuring it out as I go, but it seems like people they appreciate it, and um, and there are a lot of ways. I mean, as you know, through you can make a career through the internet. Mm-hmm. Um. In a myriad of of avenues, right? Yeah. So, I, yeah. yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's it's super fun, but I think the the key really is to how do you how do you keep it fresh in your mind, right? right. How do, how can you tell a new story that, you know, it's like a, a comedian who's been telling the same jokes for twenty years, right? I, I that's the thing that I respect so much about comedians is that they have to get new material mm-hmm. every year or two, right? They can't rely on that same joke again and again because it's basically a magic trick. And as soon as you've seen the magic trick once, it doesn't have that same spice to it, but I, I enjoy it. It's, it's um, it's just, yeah, as you said, it's a challenge. And, um, those honest testimonies I think can be really powerful for people to hear.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. I, whether it's, you know, through edited digital form writing or speaking, like I said, I think people always smell a rat if you're being dis dishonest. Yeah. Um, or if you're being very honest, it really comes through. But I remember uh, talking about that, um, that when I was younger and first started getting cameras in my face. I was terrified. Terrified, man. My heart would just be racing. I get sweaty palms. I my lip would start twitching. I had there's this. I remember this thing that was on like San Diego news. This guy interviewed me and you could visibly see my lip twitching. And I, and another time like surfer pole, they were like, Hey, can you come and give away an award? And I just remember getting up there. Like it wasn't that bad until I got up there and it's just bright, blinding lights. You can't see the crowd, but you can hear them all. And then they messed up the um, all the slides for the nominees, and they showed like who won out of order. So it made me look like I was just a total idiot, and I was just so rattled. Like it's it that same feeling like I was talking about with bow hunting the first time an animal got in front of me. That like
0: trying to manage your physicality becomes so difficult.
1: And I was like so freaked out and awkward. The girl that was like handing the awards away. She went to go for like a kiss on the cheek and I was like so awkward I accidentally <laughs> kissed her on the lips <laughs> and this was like
0: oh it was heavy uh, slip in the tongue but uh, but that's what was so nervous what what made you so nervous I don't know Like man. bring me bring me into that that uh, moment what it actually felt like I think just
1: just having a bunch of eyes on you I wasn't used to it so um it really has taken me years of Real life practice of being in front of camera or speaking to, to be able to do it, um, and I, you know, well, and we're talking about speaking. That that would be like taking it to the next level is really doing it, and and, and over and over and keeping it fresh and getting the message across and having it authentic. I think it, I feel like
0: that would be like my next step in being able to. How would you practice uh, getting better at speaking? Because a lot of times I find that people will wait until that big moment and they'll expect, they expect that they're going to be able to show up for that interview or that That's pretty much what I did,
1: but I got to do it so many times it ended up becoming like practice.
0: Right. (laughs) Was there one that you realized you're like, well, I can actually do this now. I, I don't get red in the face and my lip doesn't start twitching. Do you remember one where it started becoming more and more comfortable for you? Um I I just remember
1: that um I I don't remember a time where it really clicked there's probably a lot of small things like you know a uh a, a, a H3O interview or something you know and and little things leading up to it or, or phone interviews for a magazine it was just kind of baby steps that built up to a gradual comfort but still um you know I have to really work hard when I read a script um, or if I'm talking about subject matter that doesn't, that I'm not super passionate about if, as long as I'm sticking to what I'm passionate about, I can just pour a ghee out and just talk all day.
0: Right. Who, um, who in, in the world has had an influence on, on you in terms of their ability to get, get an idea out really effectively.
1: You know who I'm a huge fan of is Henry Rollins. Uh, he's a smart dude
0: Henry Rollins I Yeah do uh, My friend uh, My friend Rob Moult He used to work at Sector 9 And uh-huh. he got Henry Rollins To do uh, his voicemail Then yes. he says Hi This is Henry Rollins Rob isn't here Because he's too busy Bombing hills Not countries Get it <laughs> <And> then, uh, <laughs> That's so The greatest rad. voicemail Of all time <laughs> I'm jealous. Yeah. Oh, uh, but he's just... I, I've always thought about that. Like, if I meet my hero, like, the, some super famous guy, i hey, will you just do my voicemail for me? am <laughs> to keep it forever. That's a good one, man. I need to remember that. Um, but... Uh, like, how'd you, like, call him? Like, hello, this is Barack Obama. Um, <laughs> Kyle is not here right now. To- <laughs> He's out uh, body surfing, and I'm about to go join him. We, uh, leave a could, message.
1: Or you could just fully go pay an impersonator and just lie to all of your friends <laughs> and sound like a big deal.
0: No one will ever
1: know. <laughs> it probably You could probably, like, crowdsource it. Like, okay, who's got... I, I have $15 for the best Barack Obama voicemail. Send it to me. What do you like about Henry, Henry Rollins? Rollins? I, I like his thought process. I think he challenges himself to not leave ideas untied, you know how you can kind of like how we keep talking about that critical thinking process that seems to be lacking in the, the digital commenting world and social media um, to where like, I even know I do it sometimes where you're, you're like challenging yourself to really think about each step of a particular topic and then you kind of like breeze over one section that you knew you breezed over because it maybe is inconvenient to the way you want to think. Right. And it I doesn't think,
0: fit the narrative that you're building.
1: Exactly. And and just listening to some of the things that Henry Rollins says, I I like the way he talks. He's very good at uh explaining where he's coming from in an authentic way and uh I I can tell by the conclusions and how he explains the conclusions that he comes to with, and you don't feel like he's trying to explain that it just happens naturally. Where do you
0: listen to him? Does he have his own uh, podcast? I've, something? I've listened to
1: him just on like different YouTube speeches that he's done. And uh, I just listened to the Joe Rogan one that he did. Um, it was really, really cool. I, I, and I like it because I, I feel, you know, not, I I feel similar to him in the way that, like, you can't really put a finger on what his opinions might be on a particular subject. And, you know, he was this guy in this, you know, nuts punk band, but he doesn't drink, you know, he kind of defies a mold. I love that. I feel like I'm always like coming in. People are like, okay, so you go to yoga and wear some Lululemon stuff and you go (laughs) behind. But I'm just like, I just take- Shattering cliches (laughs) left and right. Well, I just take everything and and kind of make a decision on it based around
0: exactly what it is and not fitting into a greater picture, I guess. Well, it takes an element of mindfulness. It takes an element of of noticing your thought Mm -hmm. and making a decision after noticing it. Right, yeah, and those are those are what all of the the greatest leaders do. One of the um, one story that I heard about JFK that I always really really liked is that when he was in, um, I'm going to butcher, butcher the story, but when he was um, doing negotiations with a country that was it was really tense, and there was two letters sent to him, one um, from the president that was you know I'm really happy that that we're able to work through this right now. I, I hope that. Um, you know, we can come to a peaceful agreement. And then the the leader of the country sent him another note that was much more hostile. And mm-hmm. it was that, I don't know exactly what it said, but um, essentially it was much more hostile. And JFK read both the notes and he responded only to the first one right. saying, I'm so happy that we're able to come to peaceful negotiations around this agreement. And that type of... Taking a step back and noticing and then reacting and, and not reacting is, is something that I, Holy I like about that. That's about something him.
1: that uh, I've been so bad about in my life, but it's a skill that I've, I'm working on and I've gotten a lot better and mostly because of my girlfriend, Kim, that she's just like, Well, she, she, she knows like when there's something that, that that, like isn't really important or things that might be going a little pear shaped, I can always tell she'll kind of like wander in, like drift in and start from a distance. Looking over my shoulder While I type an email <laughs> like I think you should Wait half an hour And look, read that again And maybe type it again
0: Right That's a big one Sending pissed off emails And Well it's ha- it's not even necessarily Pissed off emails right. The way I communicate Is like Which I've learned
1: From her Mostly <laughs> Is kind of different than Because I'm very like I appreciate Dead set honesty I usually get along With the kind of people Too that like you either love or hate or like i'll i'll appreciate somebody that's like dead blunt honest even if i totally do not agree with them whatsoever right. not everybody's like that you have to sugarcoat some stuff and right. so especially like when you don't have time and you know have things on paper just don't they don't have the same tune as right. it did when you in in right. your mind. It, the triggered <laughs> snowflake generation. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it can be tricky. So I'm I've gotten a lot better about that, and and I've seen the the results of it. You know, you look back a week later on something you wrote, and you're like, wow, I'm so glad I didn't go with you know. I I'm glad I took the effort to not just uh, you know take this personally or. Uh, write it during an emotional state or or took the time because it really is I've learned it's it's taking the time to deliver the message in a way that the other person can understand right like we don't all think the same and I can't think that the way I look at the world or will look at a message is the same as another person yeah, we, we, and, We've all, sent, that we've all sent
0: a text that wasn't read the right way, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm good at those. Yeah, my, my mom told me uh, once pretty early on in my life that if someone's not getting back to you on an email, expect that they just had a relative die and respond with a follow-up email in that way. Not That's like, like a really good one. Right, but it, it kind of makes sense because if you send... Um an email that sounds like an asshole because you think like, oh, they're just not getting back to me because they don't care and they did have a relative die, then it's it's your bad. Right? yeah,
1: or or it's that that thing like I've done it before, you know, where you're like,
0: oh, you know, my
1: phone's gone. I left I must have left it on the table at that restaurant. somebody stole it somebody stole it right. or you have, I the know world people out to get me. Yeah, I, I have friends, every time, something's gone. It's like somebody stole it. Right. And then you're like, like oh, it, was my, okay. it was under my seat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, that kind of stuff happens enough to really put yeah. things in perspective. And like, you know what? I'm not the smartest guy.
0: ever. Yeah. So what, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you go pretty soon. I, no worries. You got time? Yeah. Um, cruising. Sweet. I mean, it was fun. Um, what skills are you are you working on most in spear fishing right now? Um in spear fishing skills that I'm working on most or, or are you?
1: I am, yeah, it's always working on something. Um it's just getting my uh my like sternum and rib cage flexibility better. Um I cuz I had a I kind of separated the cartilage in my sternum and broke a rib, at least one rib, getting too swole. like <laughs> A while ago, and I, I'd say it was about what, five, five years ago, and I, I've just never had that stretch in my chest again, so I'm just going to have to keep pounding at it to get that uh, that range of motion. Do you use uh, one of the balls,
0: the balance balls, and you lay back on?
1: Yeah, I do, but I can't do that right now because my shoulder's messed up too.
0: Ooh. It doesn't like to go in that direction. Yikes. It's always something so that's um, that's a skill that you're working on before you go and it's just so that you can stay mm-hmm. down longer and get um, more gas in the gas tank yeah
1: and you feel less less squeezed and under pressure when you're diving deep so it's it really uh, benefits you on the deeper end more um, I'd like to you know with under proper supervision of friends dive in safe uh, at least push my my uh deeper side of my diving yeah have you been going with justin lee quite a bit um usually i haven't gone with him in a while for a spearfish um but geez he's a beast he put his head to it and trained and he's diving deep
0: so i i had him on the the podcast and the thing was so hilarious he's like yeah so i i started swimming when i was a junior in high school and then when i was a senior was um all american got a full scholarship to seattle and i'm like oh, you're, you're one of those guys huh you're like yeah well, you know I've been in the ocean my whole life but yeah I just started spearfishing a few years ago and now I yeah represent the United States as one of the top spearfisher he, he finished higher
1: than any person in the world championships from the United States in like the last 25 30 years whoa yeah and and it's so stacked against you like we can talk about it for a while but it's so stacked against you. Um, doing a spearfishing event in the Mediterranean with all because in Europe those guys are like they're they get paid more than professional surfers here it's what they do for a living and also spearfishing tournaments in their nature is one of those things where it's only cheating if you get caught all the teams cheat and also they send scouts when they know the location they have teams of like thirty guys that are amazing free divers that'll go and scout and find every rock in that place for two years straight. And then when the big hitters come in, they have the playbook and uh, they also use their scouts to antagonize other countries when they're scouting so that you'll just have a shadow on you to just irritate you and and also make sure you don't find something that they know about
0: right justin was telling me about a lot of the dirty tricks that will go down where he he would be down and then Mm -hmm. another guy would only go halfway down and shoot his shoot their gun to scare the fish away yeah and supposedly one of the top guys did get caught using a flashlight which is strictly
1: yeah for exactly so basically for justin a place that high not being from there and scouting for what two and a half weeks um if it was a even playing field, he would have won by like a landslide. Wow! So you got to understand what the, the context of actually placing his highest. No, he and
0: is. and being the humble guy that he he is, he didn't uh, place that context for me when we were talking. Yeah. He said that he's like, well, you know, so I have these big tree trunk legs, so I use. He does. These he's got thunder thighs. <laughs> he has thunder thighs, and he uses these stiff fins that mm-hmm. um, aren't normally used by by people at that level. They use really kind of thin. You can speak to this probably much better than i can but Mm -hmm. um they use thinner fins that are easier to kick with but because he has such strong legs he can use thick um fins and he said you know when i went over there pretty much everyone all they did was just make fun of me for all the gear that i was (laughs) using
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it the the spearfish competitive spearfishing world is a funny one man there's there's some characters that's it's like primed for a documentary yeah a spinal tap-esque documentary on competitive spearfishing
0: some kind of soap opera could work as well <laughs> yeah. did you did you do competitive spearfishing for a while as well
1: yep that's actually how i met justin is okay. at tournaments um over here on oahu i got in i i did my first tournament probably when i was like 22 oh um and then got into it for a bit and had fun and yeah. it was cool and got to meet a lot of cool people. But now you haven't been that into it, right? Lately. Right.
0: Well, it seems like a lot of sacrifice for not that much it's, benefit. It's,
1: it's a ton of sacrifice, right? So, if I'm going to go do something, I'm going to win. You know, not going there, I can go drink beers and go on an epic spearfishing trip for half the effort and probably half the price. You know, to wherever in the world I want to go. Um, so, if you're going to go to do a spearfishing tournament, you go to win. And so you show up to a place that you're completely unfamiliar with a lot of times and you go and just scout and scouting is work. It's eight hours a day in the water, just swimming and and trying to figure out the fish behavior, what the fish species look like, being able to eyeball a fish and be like, okay, that's meeting the minimum length or weight requirement in the tournament, etc.
0: Damn. Whereas you, yeah, you could just be on an epic boat trip. Exactly. Do a, a And you don't
1: even get a trophy half the time. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Oh, and you
0: get a congratulations email. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't, that, I don't know about that. that
1: but <laughs> there's like a perpetual trophy and then you come back next year and the, your name's still not on the cult. Co- you're like, oh, we'll get around to it.
0: Right. But and, <laughs> and being the um, the conservationist that you are, there is this opportunity to tell really cool stories that have an amazing point of entry through spearfishing to yes. then enlighten people to how our fish ecosystems work. Because we care about the charismatic megafauna, right? The mm-hmm. lions, the tigers, but fish don't have eyebrows. So we don't necessarily... Humans, it just doesn't cross that empathy barrier right in the same way in unless you can tell a cool story about someone like Mark Healy who cares about this fish and you're good at explaining that what are some of the um, stories that you're most passionate to get out to the public around fish right now Um,
1: what I'm most passionate about is um, balanced management systems I mean you know just like the the land and ahapua'a management system that the Hawaiians had. So the Hawaiians had uh, probably one of, if not the most efficient uh, resource management system from the top of the mountains all the way down to the ocean of any civilization ever. So we got a really good kind of blueprint. And also the population was very, very similar to actually what it is today, the Hawaiian population, before, you know, why showed up with a bunch of diseases. And uh, so it is relevant to us. Right. but it's, it's really management because what happens just like these social media debates and everything, it, it gets polarized and it turns into-
0: Kelly Slater wants to kill sharks.
1: Yeah, and it's, or, you know, a scientist, scientists work on grants. They got to get money from somebody. So when they're at the Catalina Mixer trying to get money for a grant and the, the old widow that likes cute little sea lions is like, I'll give you money, but make sure you save all the sea lions. Okay, well- you have three times the amount of sea lions than they're supposed to be. They eat around the clock. All of a sudden, there's no fish or lobster left. Right. You know, and it's. I think it's taking a sober and realistic and holistic approach. Right. To, right. To are are there? Management.
0: What are? Um. I I completely agree. Are there any species right now that you think people need to know about specifically? That are having a big impact, either positively or negatively, on on ecosystems. I mean that i I think there's there's good light on
1: on some of them whether it be like the lionfish epidemic up and down the east coast um or or some of the invasive species problems what's with,
0: happening with the lionfish?
1: Well, they have just spread like crazy they they're all the way up to like I wanna, they're past North Carolina um in the Maryland I believe it maybe even farther north, but um they just have exploded in population when they're not supposed just, to it's only been over. In less than a decade,
0: wow! Yeah.
1: Since they were introduced, um, yeah, they got introduced at some point, and they're they're going nuts. Either that, I I I could have this wrong. They could have been isolated to the Bahamas and the Caribbean area, but um, something happened, and they're everywhere. And the problem with a fish like that is that they don't have natural predators so much, and they eat a lot of young fish, so they get to hammer all the the small fry and different reef fish and there's not enough predators eating them.
0: Wow. And they just keep swimming up rivers and into the different lakes. No, no. this is just all saltwater. All saltwater. Yeah. So if okay. you go and
1: go to wrecks in like Florida or South Carolina, they can just be covered. In
0: Don't they have a lionfish, lionfish tournaments? Yes. Well, that's
1: a cool thing is like, People are like, well, they taste really good. And, you know, restaurants are, are putting them on the menu and there's information out on how to cook them, how to clean them, um, how not to get spined by them. And the same thing is happening here in Hawaii with uh, Roy, which is a, a black grouper, and they are just they just destroy everything around them. And we just have a ton. Roy, Ta'ape, and To'ao. And Ta'ape is a snapper variety. It's bright yellow with horizontal like electric blue stripes and the To'au is like a a pink orange snapper with a dark tail and all three of these got introduced from um french polynesia back in i want to say i could be wrong the 50s or 60s um because they thought there wasn't enough fish in hawaii (laughs) and so yeah they kind of take over areas of reef and just eat every small fish that comes their way
0: wow the um the intersection between species i mean because i've been a surfer my whole life but we're on top of the water mm-hmm. and we're not really i'll you know, i'll see a sea lion every once in a while a seal sea otter but we're not really seeing that intersection between how one species is impacting another mm-hmm. and when my good friend, uh, Dr. Jamie Gove, who's an oceanographer for NOAA and he's mm-hmm. a coral reef oceanographer, was telling me about the impact that that wild pig and goats have up in the
1: mountains. Goats are the worst.
0: They'll destroy, yeah. right? And the impact that they have on on um, creating on basically digging up any soil retention in the watersheds. So you have a day like today where it's covered in mm-hmm. mud and that, that's suspended over the reefs and that kills the reef. Was a mind-blowing lo- mind concept to me, right? Mm-hmm. Because I hadn't thought very much about how one species way up in the hills can affect a whole nother ecosystem. But as soon as you start noticing it, right, like back to what you were saying earlier in our conversation about going on some of your first hunts, the amount that people who are Good hunters or good spear fishermen notice about an ecosystem is yes. is the, uh, this specialized body of no- knowledge that is really important to get out to people.
1: Absolutely, and that's that's one of the things that I'm really trying to push on and with like the shark tagging projects and everything. A, I want to realistically apply skills that I think can really help. Um, you know, science and conservation in the right places, not just be like I'm a. I'm a freaking D grade celebrity. So I should be on this doing something that an intern could do, you know, like, okay, I'm, I can get close to these animals. I know the spear gun. Well, I can definitely get more tags out then and save them a ton of time and money. Um, so what is trying to do that?
0: What is the, for that project?
1: Uh, shark Tagging project. Well, uh, so I did, I put the tags in the first ever, uh for pelagic threshers i did that in philippines so as the first tracking data for that species at all
0: what does that actually look like
1: so um
0: the tag yeah what's the process so like it's a tag small it's about
1: the size of maybe a little shorter than like a lipstick um and it's it's attached to a little string like heavy duty kevlar string but it's narrow um with like an a stainless steel, almost arrowhead-shaped anchor, and uh, I I apply that to my spear gun, and I shoot the shark at the base of the dorsal fin, so the spear gun's powered down, so I know just the distance I can get it to get that about. Do you do that with putting half an inch on, putting on, on
0: bands that aren't as strong? Yes, to power down the. But the problem
1: is, is since you got that tag, which has got a ton of surface area compared to a normal sur- uh, spear shaft, is it slows the shaft down and also makes it corkscrew. So power is your friend for accuracy. So it's finding the happy medium between powering it down to where you're not going to injure an animal, but also you need to be accurate. You don't, you can't be putting tags in this thing's a rib cage. Um, so it's, it's tuning it in and finding the happy medium. And pelagic threshers are, are not a shark that's going to respond to chumming. They're absolute ghosts for the most part. Um, so it was really like it's hunting. I had to hunt them. And they come into these deep water ledges before the sun actually rises when it's still pretty dark in the water. And they come to these ledges between like 80 and 100 feet to do laps past coral heads where they know there's cleaner wrasses and that's how they get their parasites clean. So they've been up feeding deep in the ocean, you know, all the way to the surface all night doing God knows what, because nobody's ever tracked them. Um, And then they just come before they probably rest for a little bit to get cleaned off and wow. so i was hanging around there waiting for him
0: how cool what a what an amazing project to be a part of yeah
1: super cool and then there's a japan project which is this is crazy there had never been a shark uh tagging and tracking project ever in japan what? for a country that's so techn- technologically advanced and so um a group of guys reached out to me trey packard he's from a, a Uh, a non-profit called Pangea Seed that do like really rad different projects, super passionate guy. And um, Austin Gallagher, who's a, uh, he, he's a marine biologist. He, he is really into the the predator side of, of research. And uh, so you went over there? Yes. So went over there and we started the first tagging project ever. Um, So we tagged Galapagos and hammerhead sharks Uh, with satellite tags and acoustic tags. So the acoustic tags were the ones that we used in Philippines. So we did some of those there. And those rely on putting receivers in the bottom. So the team gets in with their scuba gear and they put in these listening devices basically. So it can differentiate between different um, acoustic tags, the individual. So it's really finding out when they frequent an area and where they get picked up. And the satellite ones actually show their movements. And what can you do with that data then? So, what you can do with the data is, like, for instance, at both locations, the sharks are protected at that place, but they don't just stay there. So, you need to figure out protection corridors because if the sharks are migratory in nature, which most are, um, they just go get. They don't recognize. On a long line. They don't
0: recognize state lines. Exactly. Got to so, teach them those.
1: So you're was- You're pissing into the wind if you just protect one little area. So it's creating that data set, and the good thing about this is. As opposed to the traditional way, which is hook and line, sharks, I don't know if you remember the crocodile hunter, He had, his big thing was a top jaw rope with the crocodiles because they can get build up so much lactic acid that they die. Sharks have, are somewhat similar in that, in that if they get too much lactic acid, they, they can go belly up. And there is a mortality rate that's associated with catching them, um, hook and line to tag them. So with this, it's just one quick little sting and they go. So you you got to think there's zero mortality rate. And also if, if a shark is so damn tired because you have to wear it out before you pull it up to the side of the boat, or you're going to get, you know, your ass kicked by this thing, um, is how long does it take before you get, um, natural behavior? If it's tired to the point of, uh, almost death, when is it going to start acting normal? Can you rely on that data? Wow. So this is a quick sting and they go right back to what they're doing and when, it, and and the pelagic threshers are probably some of the thinnest skin and most most uh, delicate of, of a lot of sharks. And the really interesting thing that came through with this was out nine out of nine sharks came back and got picked up on the receivers at the same location as where I tagged them. So their behavior, it showed that their behavior did not change at all.
0: That's so cool. So before researchers would hook them, bring them up, and then tag them from the surface. Is that correct? Yeah, pull them up to the side of the boat. And And are you free diving when you're tagging these? Yes, free diving. So that allows you to kind of drop in at
1: at an angle to where you can get a good shot at the base of their dorsal. That's one of the reasons why free diving is the answer as opposed to scuba because on scuba you're usually – you don't know where the shark's going to be oriented in the water column. So if you're lower than the shark, the bubbles won't allow the shark to – they'll they'll get spooked right and a lot of times when you when you come from the bottom up at sharks it's something about their their field they feel you faster and they spook as opposed to from the top and um and you can't go up and down with scuba to adjust you're you're pretty limited
0: super cool so damn you should be really fit you should be super proud of that yeah i
1: am i'm super i'm very very proud and we're gonna go back in august um national nat geo is underwriting the trip this year and Putting some funds, I mean, and when I say that, it's like enough funds to have a bunch of guys sleeping on a on a floor and farting and snoring yeah, all what, night. What fun though, right? <laughs> that, I mean, how that, many yeah. how many s-
0: times have you heard surfers say, you know, I want to go on a trip and I want to give back, but I don't necessarily know how. And yeah. it's it's more difficult to. Um, I mean, there are ways to do it, right? Mm-hmm. With what John Rose is doing, giving water filters, which is awesome, which is awesome, but to actually be Creating a new data set um, mm-hmm. so that we can know more about this animal is... Um, that's cool, man. That's yeah, profound. I'm
1: stoked. And you know what was really interesting is because we did it in the year when the you know El Nino is winding up and the water was a lot warmer than usual. So it's going to be very interesting to see the migratory behavior after this next round of tags compared to then. And that could give us a good window into warming ocean how animals are going to move differently so not only was it the first time it was at an event that only happens every 20 or so years that could give us a glimpse into the future so we were very fortunate actually that we got to create that baseline
0: damn that's cool how many sharks do you tag on a trip like this
1: it depends man it's it's so i'm not going and tagging tigers or whites or anything like that that's actually really easy because you just bait them they're going to come up they're confident you know, they'll come up and bump a boat and what and they got really thick skin you don't have to worry about placement as much you you know you can power it up and just make sure it gets under there they're not going to care it doesn't even bother them um but when you have sharks like these schooling hammerheads or these pelagic threshers that wouldn't they won't respond to chum they're there for the the pelagic thresher is there for getting cleaned by a tiny little colorful cleaner wrasse that looks like an aquarium fish um, the hammerheads are schooling for social reasons and it's just certain times a day when the current's absolutely cranking so they're not responding to the usual things so it makes it a lot more challenging to whereas like going and doing it with tigers I'd be like ah oh, that's it's some he could probably get an intern. Almost like like, so they're not as
0: like big, throw, throw the 18 year old in yeah. there.
1: So, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I don't know
0: what I signed up for. Or You can do it from the boat. Nat Geo sounded a whole lot cooler from the website.
1: Yeah. But, uh, but that, that's where understanding hunting really works for me. And, and something, you know, they, on paper it's like that isn't a big shark that can kill you. I'm like, no, but it's so much more challenging and it really tests your skill level.
0: Right. Oh, that's great, man. What are um, some books or documentaries or resources that you would recommend people check out to learn more about fish ecosystems or ones that you, um, you know, the ones that have impacted you. I think most of the, most of the stuff that's impacted
1: me has just been my conversations. Um, I should be, I wish I had a list, but it's, and that's the other really cool thing about working on these different trips. And I've also been on other filming trips where you'll find it's a conglomeration of of scientists, you know, sometimes filmers. They come together for kind of a calm, shared goal, which buys them a space on the boat or whatever, but they're also disseminating the info for their particular uses afterwards. So you get these this collection and just, I just like to pick their brains and learn. And I think- those honest conversations I've had over beers with, uh, you know, some of the leading marine biologists has been really inspiring. Yeah. And I, and I, I wish there was m- more conversations with them like that because at the end of the, uh, you realize like these guys are very pragmatic. They're not hung up on stuff and but in casual conversation. And, and I, I think we all agree on pretty much everything, but, yeah. But, you know, they even have to be careful about what they say. It's like, oh, no, that thing's cute. You know, the same thing about people coming down on you for that hunting photo. They're exposed to that same shit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just hearing them talk, speak honestly is is very refreshing and I learn a lot.
0: Right. Well, they're a, a rare group that is talking about Uh, an issue from a sober place yes right and they don't anthropomorphize the animals and their goal is to keep an ecosystem as healthy as possible Mm -hmm. but a lot of times it's not a simple story to tell because there can be a dozen impacts that are um ultimately coming, resulting in the decline of an animal. So it's not this simple narrative that we enjoy telling exactly. or that's easy to tell, right?
1: Yep. It's, it's, it's hard to, to package and feed to the masses. Damn it. I hate <laughs> critical thinking. <laughs> yeah. Can't we just have it be simple? Exactly. But yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's awesome. It's, it it's been cool. a ton of fun.
0: Right on, man. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, is your Nat Geo series out right now? Uh, no, that that's they're just underwriting the next okay. trip That'll be in August oh, cool. We head back to Japan All Right on, well where can people reach out to
1: you? Oh, um, Well, they can hit me up on my Instagram I'm probably on that more than anything else And that's Healy Water Ops H-E-A-L-E-Y Water OPS
0: um, Right on, man Thanks for taking the time That was like, super fun
1: Yeah, thanks, Koff.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you have feedback for me on this podcast, let me know on Facebook or Instagram if you have recommendations for future guests. Ping me and I will respond. Now get outside and have a beautiful day.